0: Uh, to the end, to chapter 50. And and as Steve's uh, already mentioned, as you'll have picked up from the reading earlier, in chapter 37 here in the book, we are picking up uh, the book where the character of Joseph comes to the fore. He becomes the main character, as it were, it seems, through the rest of the book. Although there's also uh, mention of uh, Jacob and Judah. Having said that about Joseph, though, we know these these chapters as the story of Joseph. I think it's worth immediately recognizing as we begin this series together that there is one other person who is actually the main character, the main actor, as it were, in these chapters. His name is written less in these chapters than before uh, up to this point in Genesis. But right the way through these chapters, they scream out to us that this is God at work. This is the story of God and his good purposes. All that is happening here in these chapters, God is above. He is providentially bringing about. He's fulfilling his good purposes through characters like Joseph and Jacob and Judah. Now, as we work through these chapters over the next little while, we'll see the details of why God works as he does here, to send Joseph to Egypt, for example, and in all that follows after that. But for now, here's the point. God is at work fulfilling his purposes, purposes which we know from the rest of Genesis are good. That's why uh, I've given this series that overall title, God's Good Purposes, because I think that's what we're going to see as we keep coming back to this right the way through the chapter. God is working, and he is working to fulfill his good purposes for his people, even in amongst what can seem like at a times a complete mess. What are those good purposes, though? Well, in headline form, here is what God has promised so far in Genesis, good things that he says he'll bring about. First off, Right back in Genesis 3, chapter 15, only moments after Adam and Eve's sin in eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we see God's gracious, grace-filled promise that one day an offspring, a seed of Eve, would crush the head of the devil. And in many ways, this is what keeps the rest of Genesis going, Because the rest of Genesis keeps coming back as we work through generation after generation after generation. Will this new offspring be the promised seed who will finally do this? Ten times, including here at the start of our passage, we're introduced to a new generation. And the question is always, will the serpent crusher finally come in this generation? In our case now then, at the start of chapter 37, will they be found in Jacob's offspring? But of course, if you're familiar with Genesis, you'll know that it has also been full of other kinds of promises, all kinds of other promises. First made to Abraham, then to Isaac, to Jacob. Promises of a land that will be given to God's people. Promises that a great nation will come from Abraham's family. Promises of blessing blessing for Abraham and his family and that through Abraham and his family all nations will be blessed. blessed. And one other promise that God makes to Abraham then also later to Jacob is that kings will come from their offspring. And I I mention this because we're going to see over the next coming months, well, we come to realize that Joseph isn't the promised king. In many ways, we'll see in his character, in what happens to him, an anticipation, a foreshadowing of who that promised king will be and what he will be like, of course, the Christ. So to hopefully sum up where we find ourselves in Genesis 37, many promises have been established. They've been given by God to Abraham and his offspring as God has entered into covenant with them. And now, in these final chapters, we're beginning to see this move. This move from the giving, the establishment of promises, to the fulfillment of these promises. How is God going to work to bring about his good purposes from what he said? See, as we reach Genesis 37, readers might be forgiven for thinking we've already, in many ways, been waiting a long time for these promises to come to fruition is God actually going to bring about these good purposes? And in particular, I think the question might even be, given the continued pattern of sin that we see here in Genesis and the ongoing mess, even in the lives of those supposedly chosen by God, the question can, can probably be, is God really still able to accomplish his good purposes? Will he really be able to make good on all of these promises that he has made? in the midst of all that we see going on. And I guess just as that would have been a question for those living in the time of Genesis 37, that would have been a question for those who have read this throughout the years. This is a question for us today too, isn't it? It's one we might well be thinking. Even for us today, given what we see in the world around us, the sin, the mess that seems to be everywhere, is God still really at work? accomplishing his good purposes? Is he still really able to make good on all the promises that he has given us? And that very real question is what a chapter like the one we have before us this evening speaks into. Because as we read it, we begin to see this resounding answer. Yes, God absolutely is able to do that. He is and he will continue to be at work to fulfill his good purposes for his people. This chapter speaks to us and says, listen, I know as you look out at things, things might seem out of control, like things even could be going in the wrong direction. But listen, as we'll see, we can remember and take heart. Remember and take heart in this truth, this reality. God's good purposes are being and will always be fulfilled. There is absolutely nothing that can get in the way of that. So as we see this and get into the specifics of our passage, as we do that, I want to see here, first of all, this reminder, this reminder that tells us to take heart because God's purposes are being and will be fulfilled, first of all, even in the midst of and through people's sin. See, as we look at the chapter that uh, Derek read for us earlier, it starts off okay, doesn't it? Having told us in verse 1 of Jacob living in the land of Canaan, and then having been introduced to this new section in verse 2, focusing on Jacob's family, we're introduced to Joseph, this 17-year-old boy doing regular things at the time, pasturing, looking after the sheep with his brothers. So far, so good, we say, so normal in many ways. But then things begin to go awry, go awry quickly. Read at the end of verse 2, we read at the end of verse 2 of Joseph bringing this bad report of his brothers to Jacob, his father. Now we can't be sure whether this is justified or not, but whatever the case may be, we are immediately now face to face with something that in Genesis has already been far too common. Sibling relationship breakdown. And sadly, that's then what we see come to its fullness in verses 3 to 4. First, in verse 3, we read of the sin of unhealthy favoritism. As we read that Israel, that's the name that God has given to Jacob, he, he loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Sadly, Jacob hasn't learned from the past, from his parents' mistakes of playing favorites, Remember, for him, that ultimately led to his brother Esau looking to kill him. Surely Jacob would have known better, right? But no, there it is in verse 3, like father and mother, like son. In fact, we read at the end of verse 3 that not only does Jacob love Joseph above his other brothers, he gives him, and I guess all the brothers then, a visible sign of that favor, giving him a robe of Many colours. Now, sadly, to ruin that timeless classic lyric, it was red and yellow and green and brown and blue. Um, It actually probably is better translated, long-sleeved robe. But whatever we want to translate, the idea is the same. This is a sign of favour. This is a sign of importance. In fact, many believe this was almost a sign that this person was of royal descent, a king in the making, perhaps, we might say. Now, whatever the specifics behind this robe, it isn't rocket science, is it, to work out that giving a gift like this to one son and not to his brothers could be problematic. I'm just imagining me uh, tomorrow morning going out picking a shiny new dress for my daughter Naomi, saying, here, Naomi, have this. Nothing for Lydia Grace. That's, I'm going to tell you, 100% not going to go down well. I don't know whether it will be tears or anger or whatever it will be. Well, that's what we read of, that kind of response in verse 4, isn't it? As we read that when Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. We're only four verses in here, and already things for Jacob's family are not looking much more promising than those who have gone before. Can God really redeem a situation, a family situation as messed up as this? Well, let's keep going and see what happens next, because again, at first glance, it doesn't seem to move in a positive direction. First off, we see only this growing hatred and jealousy of Joseph's brothers, don't we? Joseph has had this dream uh, that he tells his brothers about, where his brothers are bowing down, essentially, to him. Now, maybe Joseph is unwise, but again, whatever the case may be, whether he should have shared this with his brothers or not, by the end of verse 8, what's the situation? Escalating hatred. We read, so they hated him even more for his dreams. And his words. And as if that wasn't enough, look at how this ongoing spiral continues from verse 9 to 11 as Joseph dreams another dream and again chooses to share it with his family. This time the dream implies not only will his brothers bow down to him, but his father and his mother will too. And just look at the end of verse 10 where this leaves us with his father even now rebuking Joseph, and verse 11 his brothers increasingly jealous. From hatred, in verse 4, to even more hatred, verse 8, now jealousy. There's no signs of family harmony being restored anytime soon. Is God's plan for his people heading in the wrong direction? Well, no, and I think we begin to see in these verses from 5 to 11 the fact that God still does have a plan here for his people. He's working out his purposes. See, That is the purpose, I think, of these dreams that we see here. They are given by God to reveal to Joseph that he does have a plan, that he is going to work out. He has a plan that will see Joseph being bowed down to by his brothers, even his father and his mother. Now, as I say, whether Joseph was right to share about these dreams with his family or not, we don't know. The text doesn't say But what these dreams say to us as readers is this. Listen, God does have a plan here. And it's going to involve this young man, Joseph. At this point, of course, we don't know the full story of how Joseph's brothers bowing down to him will form a part of God's good purposes. But I think we see a hint from Moses as he wrote this at the end of verse 11 that we as readers should begin to look out for it. Look out for God's work. Look what it says there in verse 11. And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. This response sounds a lot like another parent's response, doesn't it? That we read of thousands of years later, after God's revelation of his plan to her. Luke Chapter 2, verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Yes, Jacob has rebuked Joseph, but God is perhaps prompting him to, just like Mary, remember that he is a God who can do all things. He is a God who will do incredible, unbelievable things, actually, for the good and the salvation of his people. So, even in the midst of the mess, the sin we see here, God isn't saying, Right, I'm out. No, he is revealing that he still has a plan and he is pressing on with that plan for the good of his people. But for now, let's keep moving because the story doesn't immediately get any happier or less messy. In verses 12 to 17, which we're going to come back to in a little bit more detail in a moment, we read of Joseph being sent by his father to check on his brothers who are pasturing the flock over 50 miles from home. And when he eventually finds them, what do we read of in verse 18? More sin. This time, premeditated plans for Murder. Look at verse 18 with me. Seeing Joseph from afar, the brothers conspire together and plan to kill him, throwing him into one of the pits nearby and planning to say that then a fierce animal has devoured him. And listen to what they say at the end of verse 20. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. For the brothers, unlike for Jacob, there isn't even the slightest hint of wondering if these dreams could really be presenting God's plans. No, for them, this is simply one more reason. These dreams are one more reason, in a long line of reasons, why they simply want to get Joseph out of the way. Now, perhaps we're just whizzing through this story this evening, perhaps because of that, or perhaps because this is already a familiar story to us. The shocking nature of what's going on here can pass us by. But just stop with me for a minute and think again about what we are seeing here. What we see here is a growing resentment, hatred, jealousy amongst a group of brothers, and they're plotting against their own flesh and blood, planning to kill Joseph. Doesn't this just show so clearly the depths of our sin as humans, the extent of the evil that we as humans can think, can say, and can do. We're made to be God's image bearers, but we've rejected our creator and instead have gone our own way. And if we'd like to sit here this evening and think, well, that may be the case for Joseph's brothers, but that isn't for me. Listen to John's words in 1 John 3, verse 15, picking up on Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. John writes, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Hatred. Well, we'd probably all in our worst moments admit to having felt something close to that towards someone else at some point in our lives, wouldn't we? Well, as we see in our story, it actually is only... A relatively small step, isn't it, on from that to perhaps plotting and carrying out a murder. And of course, seeing this about ourselves, seeing this as what we are like as humans reminds us of why we need to hear the good news that we're going to come on to in just a minute. The good news of God's good, eternal purposes that were fulfilled For us, even through the murder of his own son. But as I said, we're going to come back to that as we close. For now, let's continue on with the story. Picking up in verse 21, and there we see Reuben. He seems to be the one who comes in to save the day, doesn't he? He steps in. But just before we get thinking that perhaps this Reuben then is the upright one in the family... Well, let's remember that Reuben had, we read just a few chapters before, gone and lain with one of Jacob's, his father's wives. No, Reuben has played his part in this mess that we're seeing here in this family. But at least here, surely only by God's grace and intervention in Reuben's heart, right, he steps in and he says to his brothers, rather than kill Joseph, let's just throw him into this pit to die. Although, as Moses writes, his plan then was to come back and save him. And in verses 23 and 24, we read that the brothers approve of Reuben's plan. And so when Joseph arrives, they strip him of his precious robe, they take him, they throw him into this empty, waterless pit. And as if this brutality, this depth of this sin wasn't enough, in almost a casual way, what do we read in verse 25? The brothers, they sit down to eat. Almost as if, well, that job done. Let's just get the barbecue out. Enjoy some grub. Hang out. We're brothers after all. It's pretty shocking, isn't it? Of course, that isn't the end of the story, though. We then read from verse 25 onwards that Judah comes up with an even better plan than just leaving Joseph to die. But again, I think we see sin particularly greed at work here. Greed seemingly now sets to work in Judah's heart, doesn't he? He says, look, here come some traders. Let's get what we all want. Get rid of Joseph, but do it without letting his blood on our hands. No guilt for us. Let's sell him off. We can get something back for him. We can be richer for getting rid of Joseph. And so that's what they do. As the traders pass by, verse 28, they draw Joseph up, lift him from the pit, and sell him for 20 shekels of silver. And at the end of verse 28, we read these words, they, that is the traders, took Joseph to Egypt. So what's going on here? It seems like a pattern of growing hatred and sin has ultimately led to the one that God, according to this passage, has set apart through these dreams, being sold off. It's led to him being led away, not only from his own family, but also led away from the land, the land of Canaan that God has promised to his people. It all seems pretty bleak, pretty hopeless, doesn't it? Where could God be in all of this? Well, as we already said at the beginning, while we don't read of it here in this chapter, we later discover the real reason why Joseph ends up in Egypt. And it isn't because of the depths of his brother's sin. No, it's because God would have him go there. He would have him go there to actually preserve the lives of these very brothers who would have, just a moment ago, tried to kill Joseph. Here's what Joseph later says to his brothers in Egypt. In chapter 45, verse 5, he says this, Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. That is quite the statement to get our heads around, isn't it? Wow. God can actually use even a group of brothers' hatred, their jealous, murderous, greedy hearts to bring about his good purposes. Of course, that's not in any way saying the brothers' behavior here is excused. No, they are still 100% responsible for their actions, for their sin. Yet God has chosen to fulfill his purposes even through that sin. That is a hard truth to get our heads around, isn't it? But as we think about that, as we think about who our God is, I think this truth should cause us to be encouraged, to take heart again this evening. Because if it's true, it means God's good purposes, they aren't simply buffeted around by each of our sin by the sin that we see in the world around us. No, what we see here in this chapter is that God's good purposes are being and will be fulfilled even in the midst of and through people's sin. I don't know about you, but as I say, I find that deeply encouraging as I think about my life and as I think about the world around me. See, if for God to fulfill his good purposes in the world, that relied on me and that relied on you living completely perfect lives, well, we'd be pretty much scuppered, wouldn't we? Every sin we commit, throwing God's purposes and plan a little bit further off course. But that just isn't the case. God is above it all. As we see here, even in the midst of and through people's sin, God is still at work. He is still bringing about his good purposes that he has promised for his people. Not only that though, I also want us to see secondly a second reason here why we can take heart from what we see here. That we can take heart in from this passage. God's good purposes they are often fulfilled even through seemingly innocuous events and circumstances. As we see this, I want us just to consider a few specific details from Joseph, uh, from this story, from verses 12 to 28. First off, do you remember that as Joseph went to find his brothers in Shechem, we read this kind of comically. He ends up kind of wandering around, doesn't he, in these fields. And we see this unnamed man come and find him. And in verse 15, the man asks him, What are you seeking? As an aside, that's a question that I seem to, even at the age of 33, increasingly find myself asking when I'm going into a room or have gone upstairs. Not, not promising for old age, I guess, but anyway. Joseph does know what he's seeking, uh, and so he explains, doesn't he, he explains that he is looking for his brothers. And just think about this, right, we're wandering around in some fields, He meets this unnamed man. What are the chances? Here is what the man says. Verse 17, they've gone away. For I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. Just stop and recognize this. God's sovereign hand, even here at work through this innocuous little section. Why does Moses bother to include this in this chapter? What does it add? Well, I think it shows us how God can even direct events as small and seemingly inconsequential as having a man who, first of all, just happened to be close enough to Joseph's brothers to overhear their conversation, and have that same man be the one who stumbles across this lost Joseph, who tells him where to go. He tells him, doesn't he, they're not in Shechem, they're in Dothan. After all, it needed to be in Dothan that Joseph found his brothers, didn't it? Because if it had been in Shechem, what would have happened? Well, the traders wouldn't have passed by. These traders that God seemed to to give as a prompt to Judah, not to kill Joseph, but to sell him off to slavery. See, I think we see so clearly here in this chapter, God's sovereign hand at work, even in the tiniest of details, He guides, he directs all that happens so that everything happens just as it needs to. So that at just the right moment, these traders come past Dothan, where Joseph and his brothers are. And not just that, these precise traders, because where are they heading? To Egypt. Where will God have Joseph go? To Egypt. Again, I think this gives us so much reason to take heart and be encouraged this evening because our God is a mighty God. He has an amazing, eternal, grand plan and that same God is the one who also has his hand on even the smallest of little details. He is above even those seemingly innocuous events, circumstances of our lives and of the lives of all of us around And in all of those circumstances, he is working for the good of those who love him. God is working through the good things. God is working through the hard things. And God is even, somehow, beyond our comprehension, working through the imperceptible things. A wrong turning, some lost keys, a chance conversation. God is even above each of those. Genesis 37, and I think it's little details tell us to remember and take heart as God's people, his purposes for us are being fulfilled. Even in those small events. Let's not forget that this week. Even in the little things that come across us this week, God is above them all. He is at work. And thirdly then, as we work through our passage i want us to also see in it reason to remember and take heart because god's purposes are being worked out even when we can't see it look with me now at this closing scene of our passage from verse 29 onwards reuben returns doesn't he and finding joseph gone he's distressed Only, we assume, for the brothers to explain the situation to him, and then together they come up with his plan. They decide to slaughter a goat, dip Joseph's robe in it, and take it to Jacob to identify it, hoping that he will make the assumption, well, this must be Joseph's blood on this robe, which is exactly what he does. Jacob, the trickster, is tricked by his own son's. And he declares there in verse 33, doesn't he, that a fierce animal must have devoured Joseph, tearing him to pieces. And this in turn leaves Jacob in verse 34 to tear his own garments, and he mourns for his son for many days. In fact, he is so grieved that we read in verse 35 that he refuses to be comforted and says, no, I shall go down to Sheol, to my son, mourning. At this point, it seems that Jacob has forgotten completely about Joseph's dream, doesn't it? After all, how can this kind of dream come to pass if Joseph's dead? And so you can imagine, can't you, if we had this as a, as a movie, you can imagine this movie scene fading out, can't you, at the end of verse 35? Fading out with this vision, this image of Jacob weeping into the darkness of the night. And yet, as the scene then shifts in verse 36, what is it that we see as the sun now slowly begins to rise? Not a dead and buried Joseph, but a Joseph who now finds himself sold to Potiphar in Egypt, And we get a hint of hope here, don't we? Of that sunrise, as it were. Because as the scene cuts to Joseph's sail, we find out that Potiphar isn't just anybody. He is an officer of the mighty Pharaoh himself, the captain of the guard. Now again, we could say so much more here, but I want us to see why I think Moses puts these two verses, 35 and 36, next to each other. And it's because I think together they remind us that even when it seems from all and any earthly perspective that things are hopeless, things are desperate, even there, God is still at work. Even in that situation, he will still bring about his good purposes. As we've been saying here in Genesis 37, the purpose of sending Joseph ahead of his family into Egypt to save their lives. Now, again, our lives aren't Joseph's lives. They aren't recorded here in the opening chapters of the Bible. But what we see here about God and how he works does mean that, again, I think we can all personally be encouraged, can take heart from what we see here. As we said at the start, there is so much in our lives and in the lives of the people around us that we do not understand. There's so much that seems to be a complete mess. There's so much that we would long for to be different as we look at our lives and the world. And yet, here from Genesis 37, we are reminded that there is so much more that God is doing than we can see at the moment. Just as Jacob, mourning, couldn't see Joseph moving into the sphere of Pharaoh and couldn't possibly have foreseen how that would then lead to him becoming second in command of all Egypt and able to save his family. So we also can't immediately and sometimes won't ever see how God is still fulfilling his good purposes for us, even in the darkest and most desperate of times. But let me assure you that he absolutely is. The famous verse Romans 8 28, that Steve was talking about this morning, tells us that, doesn't it? But also, so does the promise of God's word in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul writes this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Are you Perhaps feeling a little bit like Jacob was at the end of Genesis 37? Look in verses 34 and 35. Broken? Despairing? At the end of yourself? If so, just look again at verse 36. What's going on even at that very moment? Out of sight, God was still at work. And I can promise you there is a verse 36 for every single one of us here this evening. Whether we ever come to see it, this side of heaven or not, remember this and take heart. God's good purposes are being fulfilled for you in your life, even when we can't and maybe won't ever see it. And of course, as we come towards a a close this evening, in all of this, as we've seen God at work here in, in this chapter, I hope you can also see how we see God working in very much the same way as Genesis 37 through another son. In the life, the death, and the resurrection of his own son, the Lord Jesus, as his plans His good plans and purposes were completely fulfilled through him. Just think of the patterns that we've seen here. During Jesus' ministry, for example, there seem to be many examples of when God's purposes were fulfilled even through seemingly innocuous event circumstances. Jesus just happens to go to this wedding where they run out of wine. Jesus' path gets diverted by Jairus right past this woman who desperately needs healing. A Samaritan woman, randomly, turns up at a well just at the same time as Jesus. Are they random? No God is at work through his son. But then, of course, on an even bigger scale, what about how God's purposes were fulfilled through Jesus, even in the midst of and through people's sin? People like Judas, who, like the brothers from Genesis 37, was willing to betray someone so close to him for just a few pieces of silver. A betrayal that then would, in turn, lead on to surely one of the gravest, worst of sins. The execution of God's own beloved, completely innocent son. As people beat Jesus, as they falsely accused him, as they mocked him, as they sentenced him to death, as they nailed him to the cross, were God's good purposes to save his people being thwarted? No. The opposite. There, at the cross, we find the ultimate fulfillment of God's eternal plan. His eternal plan to rescue and redeem a people for himself. People like us. People like us who just like the brothers in Genesis 37 are deeply sinful and are in need of a savior. Well on the cross as Jesus hung there as a result of people's sin other people's sin not his own On that cross, we find that saviour, don't we? We find that saviour that we all so desperately need when we look at our own hearts and our own lives. Remember and take heart this evening. God's good, good, best purposes for us in Christ, they were fulfilled at the cross, even in the midst of and through people like us's own sin. And finally then, what of how God's good purposes were fulfilled through Jesus even when those around him couldn't see it? Doesn't the mourning of Jacob at the end of our passage remind us of the great multitude of people and of women in Luke 23 who were mourning, lamenting for Jesus as he was led away to be crucified? It's the same image. And yet even there, God was at work, wasn't he? Fulfilling his purposes. Just as the darkness would have fallen at the end of that second day with Jesus in the tomb and with those closest to Jesus likely still mourning, so the sun and the sun would rise on the morning of the third day. And as he rose, he would defeat death once and for all. And his people would be free from sin and death forever. Remember and take heart. Remember and take heart this evening. God's good purposes were fulfilled through the death of Jesus, even when those around him at the time did not see it. This is how God works and how he continues to work. Again, as Steve was speaking about this morning, God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And you know, it is because of this work of the Son, because of this work of Jesus, that we this evening can be totally assured. We can go into this week at peace. We can go into this week encouraged because we can remember that if God would work like that for me, for you, if he would send his son to die in your place, well, you can be sure that he is going to carry on that same good work in your life right through to the end, till the return of Christ or until he calls you home. You are in his hands. As you look out at your week ahead, as you look at the world around you this week and even hear about this kind of mess, the difficulties, you see sin at work, you see challenges, remember and take heart every single day. God is at work. He has already worked his good purposes for you through Christ and he will continue to do that. He will continue to do that whether you see it clearly in the here and now or whether you don't. God is at work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this chapter from your word. We thank you so much for what it has taught us about how you are a great sovereign God who is at work even in the midst or even through the sin of people like us. Lord, we thank you for how it has reminded us of how you work even in the small details of our lives. And we thank you for how it has reminded us that you are above all things and that even when we cannot see it, you are still at work for our good, for the good of those who love you. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for how you worked your good purposes for us through Christ. We rejoice again in the sun this evening. And Lord, we ask that you would help us this evening. Would you cause us to take heart this week? Whatever we face, the challenges, the difficulties, Lord, would we keep looking to you and be sure of this? You are at work and you will bring your good work in us to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, of course, the greatest work, as we've been speaking about that hope that we have, God's good purposes, they were ultimately fulfilled for us in Christ, weren't they? So as we close, that is what we are going to sing about. We are going to sing and rejoice in our hope in life and death. Whatever comes our way, we have Christ. Let's stand and rejoice together. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all evermore. Amen. Amen. Do you take a seat again and do you stick around if you're